0: We started a new series a few weeks ago. This series is called Running with the Giants. And even though it's a tri- it's like a New Testament chapter, but it's launching us into an Old Testament study. Uh-huh. Figure that one out. So we get the best of both worlds. But the name of the series, Running with the Giants, insinuates a few things. Okay? It describes your life, the b- life of the believer, as a race to the finish line. And it's not a sprint. It's a race that requires tremendous endurance because it is a grueling ultra-marathon. It's the requirement of endurance that is the focus of the study. Now, I read a story this past week. A guy did a crazy thing that required tremendous endurance. Ed Stafford was a 31-year-old British Army veteran, and he was a trekking guide living in Belize when he resolved to walk Get this, woke up one morning and decided to walk the full length of the Amazon. I didn't get the reaction I thought. He decided to walk the full length of the Amazon. And his friend and fellow outdoorsman, Luke Collier, agreed to walk it with him. How long was this? See, some of you are with me. That's great. Keep that up. How long would this journey be? 4345 Miles. From the river source in Peru to its mouth in Brazil, defeat if achieved would land both men in the Guinness Book of World Records because no one up until that point historically was crazy enough to attempt it. But they did. So in late March 2008, after 15 months of planning, Stafford and Collier flew to Peru with a pile of equipment and they started their journey. It would take them two and a half years. You got two and a half years, you don't know what to do with it? How about this? Put it on your bucket list. Mr. Collier eventually, though, quit the expedition. He just couldn't endure the hardship, and he couldn't endure his friend anymore. What actually sent him packing was when they had a fight over an iPod. Isn't that funny? In the middle of the jungle. So Ed Stafford was alone, but he was lucky enough to find a new travel companion who joined him. His name was Gadiel Sanchez Rivera. He was a Peruvian evangelical Christian. The meditative, Bible-toting Mr. Sanchez Rivera endured the jungle with uh, Mr. Stafford, day and night, being attacked by animals, held at Arrow Point by natives, starving with no food in his pack, no food in sight. But maybe the toughest test of all, for thousands of miles over varyingly hostile terrain, he managed to get along with the godless and egocentric Mr. Stafford. Well, after two and a half years, they approached the end of the trip. The two of them ran out of the wild and ran giddily into the crashing Atlantic surf, safely arriving on a beautiful, peaceful shore. You need to know that every morning you wake up, you wake up in the jungle, the Amazon, the wilderness, believer and non-believer, you and your neighbor wake up in the same wilderness. And it leaves us wondering, how did the world get to be so painful? How did this world get to be so wild and unpredictable and fatal and difficult? And the people around me don't make it any easier. Why did the world get this way? And then we begin to ask the question, and how do I get out of it alive? Last week, we talked about how important faith is to running the race with endurance. We defined faith as the assurance of things hoped for. We looked back in the past to creation and how God made the world, and then we talked about the future and where God was driving the whole thing. Based on that, this morning, we're going to head back into the Old Testament And here's why. We're going to go back into the garden to see what went wrong in this world. But we're actually going to visit two gardens. There's one in the past, but there's another one in the future. And we have to know that God's plan for humanity started in a garden, and God's plan for believers ends in a garden. Therefore, your life has two bookends. And if you understand what God intended the world to be, and you understand what he is going to recreate the world to be, you can run the race day in and day out with endurance, even though you wake up in the wild every day. If you lose sight of these two gardens, you will lose your bearings in this life. And this morning we're going to talk about things hoped for. Well, hey, let's pray, and then we'll visit these two gardens. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you've given us an account of how you intended this world to be, and you've given us a dazzling account of one day what this world will become. Based on these truths, give us hope that we can run the race that is set before us and finish well. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, hey, open your Bibles up to Genesis chapter 3 if you have not already done so. Genesis chapter 3. We're actually going to read a few verses from chapter 2. And then we're going to get into chapter three. So Genesis, chapter two. Let's read about how this world began. Uh, how many of you played with Legos growing up? I played with Legos. I like to play. Yeah, right. All right, now, honesty check. How many of you actually used the instructions to assemble the Legos when you got the box? Not me, I did, right. I didn't use the instructions. So what I assembled was something like, some sort of like it was supposed to be a space station, and it turned into some sort of like a castle, like it was a Frankenstein of well. Let's see the instructions God used and what God first assembled this world to be. Genesis chapter 2, verse 8, it says this, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Hey, not all bad. This sounds a whole lot like paradise to me. Uh, you you don't wake up to paradise, do you? Do you? You have some good days, but uh, this world is not paradise. But not Adam. Adam woke up every day to paradise, surrounded by a brand new universe that God assembled, dazzled by the stars in the sky and the trees around him and the beauty of it all. And it says the tree of life was in the midst of the garden. Hey, that's amazing, you know. We were created mortal, okay, so they don't get to live forever independent of God. But there was this tree, and as long as you could eat from this tree, you have life. You wouldn't die. So God gave man access to enduring life. But then it says this, and the tree of the knowledge of good, and here's that word for the first time in Scripture, good and evil, evil. Observe that the universe was created good, free from evil. No such thing as sin on earth. And God's intention was that man would dwell in fellowship with him in a garden of paradise. Write this down. This is the first thing we see to get our bearings in this world. God intended this world to be a garden of paradise free from all evil. Free from all evil. And the original design, the original assembly, was breathtaking, glorious, glorious. Hey, when I think paradise, I think of a place like this. Check out this picture. How would you like to go there tomorrow? Hey, how would you like to go there tomorrow? Ooh, why? Why? Because it's so pretty, and it's so warm, and it's so warm. Uh, And it's, wow, I'd spend a week there. I'd spend a month there. You give me a year, and I'd go there. You would too. Why? Because it's paradise. Wow, that, that's, that's, what, uh, that's what God made first. Not all bad, huh? So what do we observe so far in Eden? Well, we observe a good God. He settled humanity in paradise. Every need met. We observe a tree of life. We could live without death. God gave life. And then we find a protective command. Check out verse 16. Verse 16, it says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden. All right, this is big. Okay, I'm gonna read that again. Your line is every tree. Okay, got it. You may surely eat of You gotta remember that because there's gonna be a part later when that's when somebody forgets that. Okay. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, You may surely eat of, what is it again? In the garden. All of them. Look at them. It's great. There's that. You want produce? You don't need to go to Costco. Check it out. Every tree. It's all over. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and there's that word again, evil, you shall not eat. Why? For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely, and here's a new word, die. Um, jot this down. God made us free to love or reject Him. Free to love or reject Him. The word evil there means distress, misery, calamity. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, hear this, introduced the potential of evil to the universe. Did God install evil in the garden? No. What did he do? He gave a command of protection, and therefore he established man in a relationship of faith and trust. Listen, evil would have been possible even if there was not a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. At any point, Adam could have decided he was really upset and started shouting at Eve, right? Evil was possible. God put this tree there called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, It was clear what good was. Everything was made good. They already had that. So, what is this tree? This tree is learning, acquiring a first hand personal understanding of evil. How? By violating the word of God that proceeded from his mouth. This is big. God gives a loving command. Don't, here's my command, don't eat of this tree. How does that then define the relationship between God and man from the very beginning? It's one of faith and trust. You you need to trust me. There's this thing called evil. You don't want to know what it is. If you find out what it is, it will lead you to death. I'm telling you in advance so that when it happens, so that you're not surprised or caught off guard, okay? It's a very loving thing that I'm doing. Just as a parent would say, okay, the stove is great, little child. It brings you macaroni and cheese. You love the stove, but you can't touch the stove, okay? So this is a loving fatherly warning. It established from the very beginning that man would have to operate on faith, not on sight. And the faith comes from what proceeds from the lips of God. Literally, God was saying what he would say later to the Israelites. Check out Deuteronomy 30, 19. We'll put it on the screen. It says this, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death. Blessing and curse therefore choose life that you and your offspring may live that's still the way God interacts with you and me today you see he gave us a choice okay so now you have to ask yourself well why did he do it what's with the tree anyway just get rid of the tree and then we wouldn't have any problems okay what do you want to you want to get rid of the choice too you can't cho- you can't God doesn't want Pinocchio okay he wants you to be a real boy You want to be a Pinocchio? Oh, but now Mark's jumping and now Mark's waving and now Mark's strumming his guitar because it's all he could do. God doesn't want a Pinocchio. He made you a real boy. Great. Now with that choice comes the potential to turn on him and to do evil. But there are so many other things that come with that choice. Like what? Well, we can know God. We can love him. We can seek him. We can imitate him. We can enjoy him. We can worship him. We can delight in him. Okay, and we can also anger him, and we can also reject him, and we can oppose him. There's two sides to this choice. God wants us to choose life. Choice is important, isn't it? Men, those of you who proposed to your wives, right? You got down on one knee after you fell head over heels, and there on one knee, what did you say? You will marry me. <laughs> is that what you said? That isn't what you said. Well, why didn't you say that? Because you gave her a choice and you were hoping that she would reciprocate the love that you expressed to her. Am I right? And if that love is not reciprocated, oh, how it breaks your heart. Tears your heart right out. This is the kind of relationship God wants with you. Based on love and trust by faith from the beginning. God made us free to love or to reject him. All right, and then something changed. Check out chapter verse 1 says now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made the serpent he said to the woman pause there wait a minute we're now going to talk about a talking snake the serpent said this is like Dr. Doolittle right you see the movie Eddie Murphy with Dr. Doolittle with little guinea pig is just like hi start and he freaks out all right Question. Pastor, do you really believe the snake talk was this act All right, I do think this is an accurate account of what happened in the garden. You can call me crazy, but I do believe we have on record here something that actually happened, all right? Call me crazy if you want. I believe this is a literal account and not a myth, not a little teaching tool that the Israelites used for their children. I believe it really happened. Based on what? Well, based on a lot of things, okay? Um, who was this snake? Who, was it actually an animal or was there something more behind it? Um, all right, well, check out Revelation 12, 7, and 9. We'll throw it on the screen. It says this, Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down. Get this, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. All right, so the Bible basically says, according to this passage, the ancient serpent who deceived the whole world was Satan. This was Satan's strategy to get sin into the world. All right, it's a little odd strategy, getting this talking snake. Would that work today? Like if a snake slithered up to you and he was like, hey, I got an idea. Would you be like, oh, hello, little snake. What would you like to say? You'd be like, ah, talking snake. Although I found a picture of a snake. Check this out. This is like the cutest snake I've ever seen. Doesn't it look adorable? I don't know. If that snake talked to me, I might stop and listen. But that's the only one. It started talking. Talking snake. You you shouldn't have a problem with talking animals in the Bible or with demons dealing with the animals. The donkey talked to the prophet, right, later in the Old Testament. And then the pigs, remember the demons went into the pigs and chased them. And if any of you own a cat, you know the demons can possess animals. It's true. Anyway, whatever you believe about it, I think Satan definitely used this animal in a cunning way. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. Jot this down, point three. I'm going to get my bearings and understand what broke in the world so that I can run with endurance. Satan led a rebellion in heaven and then on earth. Satan led rebellion in heaven and then on earth. Here he comes. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Okay, there's a quiz for you. Is that what God said? Is that what God said? Did God come down and say, You're not allowed to eat from any tree in the garden? He didn't say that, did he? So what's with the question? What, what's with the question? Because Here, here's the thing, all right? You might laugh, and you might be like, oh, if a snake slithered up to me and started talking to me, I wouldn't fall for that trick. Okay, listen to the strategy, and you may find that some things never change. What did he do first? Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? We first observe that Satan appeals to our base desires. In essence, he was saying, You look hungry. You should eat. He said, You can't eat. All right. That's interesting. He starts with our base desires. You look hungry. You look lonely. You look angry. You look needy. You look scared. I've got a plan for how we can act on those desires. You see, he usually tempts us using desires that are in fact good, but he asks us to fulfill them in ways that are in fact evil. You look hungry. You should eat. Satan can tempt us to do awful things, and he can use things you would never expect, right? Peter got asked, The question three times, by who? By a servant girl. Oh, he'd swing the sword at the big tough guy, but the little servant girl took him down. And what's Satan's first strategy Here's his first crack at humanity? What does he use? Produce! You look hungry. You should eat. You look angry. You should yell. You look lonely. And on it goes. If we're honest, we understand that this is how he starts his work in our heart. Um, did, did God actually say you should not eat of any tree in the garden? So he brings up the fruit, and what does he do now? He exaggerates God's moral boundaries. Did God really say you should? So he turns God into this straitjacket. It's wrong, but this is a straitjacket, and, and, and maybe for you, this is your God. What God does to me is, this is what he does. He just ties me up. He takes away all my fun, and and if God weren't getting in the way, I could have so much joy and so much pleasure. God's the one taking away my happiness. Maybe this is your God. Did God really say you couldn't eat from any of the trees in the garden? Uh, This is not God. But this is who Satan wants you to think God is, as if God is the only one standing between you and your happiness. Wait a minute now. God, God surrounded me with this entire new dazzling world and made me in his image and gave me every tree to eat from. And wow, why do I feel this about him? Um, it's because of temptation. And it's because of a lie. Did God really say you can't? So he's exaggerating God's moral boundaries while at the same time minimizing God's good provision. God's the one who's not allowing you to have any fun. Ultimately, this lie will creep into our heart. The lie is that going God's way means we're going to live on less. Choosing the other way means we're going to get a whole lot more. And if we pick God's way, we're just going to be a whole lot less happy our entire life. When it's God who promises to give us what our hearts long for, right? Uh, parents, you know this, when our children speak when ungratefulness and ingratitude springs up from their hearts. You know, you you take them to Walt Disney World, and then, you know, all this fun, all of this Disney magic, and then on the way out, they want the flash and sword. You're like, no, honey, we've already gotten you a lot of... No, I want the sword! You've already got an armful of souvenirs. Sword, 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 sword! And then you get out into the parking lot, and you ask the kid, have you had fun today? No! It was not fun! No sword! The whole trip ruined... Why? Because I've got the worst parents in the world. They wouldn't get me this one. Parents, you've felt this way when your children are ungrateful. And here Satan is trying to get those feelings applied to God. Has he really said you can't eat from any of the trees in the garden? Hmm. Appealing to the base desires, exaggerating God's moral boundaries, minimizing his good provision, and then what comes next? Well, Eve responds in verse 2. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it. We don't know why she added that. Maybe um, they added some extra rules so they should stay away from it, sensing their temptation. You should not touch it, lest you die. Whatever it is, there's a, a heightened attraction to this. And verse 4, But then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. What is that called? A lie. So what is he doing now? Now, now, he's removing the fear of just consequences. You will not die. How can he, why? Well, either God didn't mean what he said, and he's a softy, or, or, this is an exception, and if you talk to people who are plunging headlong into sin, do you know what you find? Do you know what you find? As I do a lot of counseling sessions, you find often that they see their situation as an exception. No, you don't understand. This is different. What I oh, wait a minute because God's word says this and this and that. No, you don't understand. This is different. They really think God is okay with their brand. Of this sin. They really think that. It's deception. Why? Because the enemy will remove the fear of just consequences. I'm good with God. You won't be held accountable. What God says doesn't apply to you. That's the lie. And then what comes next? For verse 5. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. God knows. And so now he's like sharing from the very mind of God. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So, what, so finally, he overpromises. Oh, what sin could deliver to you! You could be like him! Uh, only, what did God already say? I will make man in my image, and like. you're already like me. Uh, but oh man, this is the way to really take it to the next spiritual level. God's really holding back all the good things on you that could be in your life. How unfair of him to expect you to live on any less. We have to stop here and just observe that it was neither murder nor hatred nor injustice nor violence that plunged this world into darkness. It was a lie that snuck sin into humanity, and it was a lie about God. And your path, if you take it to sin, will be paved with lie after lie after lie. Verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Let's talk about the results of sin, the real results of sin. Not the lies, what actually happens. First, shame. Shame. I have to cover it. I, I feel ashamed. It's on me. It's stained me. I feel dirty. I feel I I feel ashamed. You felt this. I've felt this when we know we shouldn't have done it and we did it anyway. And then the painful memory comes back up in our heart. And we feel shame and it clings to us and we can't get it off. There was a family who moved up here to uh, Chicago from Arizona. Now, if you've been in Arizona, you know that it's hot, but it's dry heat, right? It's dry, there's no humidity. So they get up here and welcome to Chicago. They walk outside one summer day and their son, who was like eight years old at the time, runs out and goes, Ah! And he goes like this, What's on me? It's the first time he felt the humidity, the heat on him. Welcome to Chicago. get used to it spiritually that's what shame is it's on me it's in me i can't i can't get rid of it it's shame so pathetically they try and cover themselves up with leaves i we just I feel so exposed and and then what verse 8 and they heard the sound of the lord god walking in the garden in the cool of the day and the man and his wife Hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Hide! He's coming! Quick! Behind the tree! He's never gonna find us here. Listen, if he says Marco, don't say Polo. How foolish is this? Isn't this how we go with God? Don't we run? Don't we run from church? Don't we run from Christian friends? Don't we stay when we sin? It's comical. God's walking in the garden. The cool of day, the man and the wife, they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called the man and said to him, "Where are you?" This is the first official on record game of hide and seek in the world. Where are you? This is where it started. Where are you? He said, uh, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid. Fear. Okay, so we got shame. We got fear. We got hiding. I was afraid. Why? Be- because I was naked. I couldn't find anything to wear and that's why I'm afraid. Cause, cause, is that true? Is that true? I was afraid because I wasn't wearing any clothes. So I hid. He said, who told you that you were naked? And then he gets to the heart of it. Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, now, guys, we're really good at this. This is called now blaming. Blaming. All right, so he says, the guy says, uh, have you eaten from the tree I commanded you not And the man said, so this woman, this woman, and then he's like, I got another finger. Who you gave me? I'm totally getting out of this one. This woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree. Well, and finally he does cough it up and he says, I ate. All right, now this is big. This is big. It's a lousy accounting, but it is an accounting. Cain next week, Cain and Abel next week. You don't get that from Cain. What do you get from Cain? What am I, my brother's keeper? All right, now that's defiance. It's not what you find here. It's lousy, but it's an accounting. Blaming. Verse 13, then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent! The serpent deceived me. She coughs it up too, and I ate. I ate. Blame shifting, fear, hiding, shame. This is what sin leads to. Relational strife. Blaming is big. You know, we, our kids, because they're pastor's kids, have to come to church every week. And sometimes they use what they learn here against us. So like one time my daughter, Allie, got in trouble. She was like four because she was roughing up her sister, Cassie, who is two. And we're like, why did you do this? And she goes, Satan again. <laughs> and we're like, no, 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 no. Blaming. We have to answer this question. Some would object. Some would say, if God knew it was going to happen, we we still blame. If God knew it was going to happen, why did he even put the tree there in the first place? We already talked about the value of having a choice. Okay. Some get all theological here. Don't get all theological here. And some will say, well, God knew it was going to happen. Some get all theological here and they think God intended it to happen perhaps so that he could find greater glory. This is big. When God showed up, he didn't say, I knew this would happen. He didn't say, I planned this would happen. He didn't say, I hope this would happen. What did he say? Why did this happen? So make sure you take God at his tone and make sure that however else you figure out the theology surrounding this, you understand that this shouldn't have happened. This shouldn't Have happened. So, what do you see in Eden? I see myself. I see my nature. I see my choices. I see how I fall for temptation. I know what's wrong. I reach out and I take it anyway. I do what displeases God. I hide. I feel shame. I run from God. I blame Him. I blame others. I sin. This is how I go with God. Do you know that the Bible says in Romans 3.23, you can put this up here, it says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Do you know that really some things never change? This is how we go with God. Do Do you agree with God and His word that this is how your relationship with God goes? Do you agree with Him that you're guilty as charged just as Adam and Eve were? Hey, God intended for this world to be a garden of paradise, free from evil. God made us free to love or reject him. Satan led a rebellion in heaven and then on earth, and and now he tempted you and me, and we sin, just like they did. Well, what happened next? Well, let's talk about the consequences of sin. Verse 14. It says in verse 14, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you! Ab- now, understand, he's not talking to snakes. He's not talking about snakes. He's talking to Satan. Okay? Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Satan is now humiliated. He was once an honored angel, we find out from other passages. He himself enjoyed the very holiest presence of God, and now he is earthbound. Now he is humiliated. Did he think it would happen? We're not sure. His relationship to humanity was probably more than he bargained for as well. It says in verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. Enmity means ongoing strife. Satan got more than he bargained for in that he, he didn't get total victory. Who knows what he wanted, but humanity was not plunged into ultimate and final and absolute and irreversible darkness. Instead, it's going to be a war. This may have perplexed the enemy. Strife, enmity, ongoing war. I just took them down. I think he got more than he bargained for. Then it says this. He, there's a lot of interesting things about this part. He, meaning the offspring of Eve, shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. Okay. Now, Scholars have a lot of opinions on what this means. Some just say it means the ongoing conflict between good and evil as generally as you can make it. Good and evil are just going to go round and round and round. Others, and I join them, believe that this has a more specific focus in mind. This enmity, this strife between your offspring, meaning the forces of darkness, and her offspring, meaning the righteous who follow God, actually describes God's cycle, his plan of redemption as it comes about. It says, he shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. The the word there, bruise or strike or attack, is used the same. So they're both doing the same thing to each other. He shall bruise or strike or attack your head, you shall bruise, strike or attack his heel. First, this means the ongoing struggle between darkness and between light. I do think because of the location of the blow, it means that good will constantly regain the upper hand. Here's basically how this is going to play out, Satan. You ready? Got your heel, smashed your head. Got your heel, smashed your head. On and on and on. What happened with Noah? Satan, I've got them, almost all of them. They're all filled with, there's just this one, Noah. I could just get him. And, and the whole world was judged and got your heel. And then what happened? Crushed your head. And Noah walked off the ark and humanity continued. Try as he might, Satan can do nothing but nip at the heels of humanity. And time and time again, God would smash him. But I do believe, even though it can generally refer to God's plan unfolding, I do believe that it specifically is completely fulfilled in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The specific offspring, where do I get this from? Well, specifically in Revelation, it talks about the child entering the world and the the enemy, the dragon waiting right there trying to slay it. The the child, singular, meaning the Christ. He knew what was going to happen. So jot this down, number four. God promised that good would triumph over evil. God promised that good would triumph over evil. Satan would not achieve total victory. And this is probably confusing to him. Somehow it would be through humanity that his head gets crushed. How could a human hurt a fallen angel? Could you find one? Could you hurt it? Could you punch it? Could you slap? He's probably like, how is humanity? Really? My doom is going to come through humanity? Then... The first Christmas day, when the angels started singing, he's like, "Ah!" It's God came down and became human. This is not good. He tried to kill Jesus at birth. He He tried to take Him out in the wilderness. He tried to drive Him to the cross. Tried to eliminate the possibility. It's interesting that the heel of Christ, isn't it, was pierced by the nail on the cross. But then the third day he rose again and utterly annihilated the enemy. God promised that good would triumph over evil. Do you know how important it is that you look to Jesus Christ alone so that you can overcome what got broken in the garden? Do you know that no one else can bring you back to what God intended other than the person of Jesus Christ? Do you understand that? What was ruined and lost that garden, you can never enter. Because of Adam, the gate was closed, access denied. But Jesus Christ is the only one who opens it back up. This study, this series, is all about trying to connect the Old and the New Testament. And we see what Adam lost, Christ came to regain. Think about it. When when Jesus was led out into the wilderness to be tempted, right? He was led by the Spirit to be tempted by Satan. What's the first thing Satan said to him? You look hungry. You should eat. Right, bread. If he could have thrown the whole world to hell using a loaf of bread, he would have done it. Appealed to the very base desires of the Lord Jesus. What's with this devotion to God? What's with this fasting? What's with this taking his plan? Just eat. What does that sound like? Eve, you look hungry. You should eat. And then what was the second temptation? Right, Took him to the top of the temple and said, Jump, you won't die. You, you will not die. Eat, you won't die. Jump, you won't die. This is kind of a, 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 differ, a different form of the same temptation. He told Eve, eat because God's word is false and you won't die. He told Jesus, jump because God's word is true and he'll catch you. And so many people plunge over the cliff into sin assuming God's going to catch them, right? It's a lie. And what was the third temptation? Kneel and I will give you all the kingdoms. That you'll be like God. Be like God. What did he say to Eve? You'll be like God, Eve. Same temptation. And Satan's record up to that point was like four billion and oh. And then he lost. But in that loss, he lost everything because Jesus defeated him, lived the perfect, sinless life, was not touched by the depravity of humanity. Because of that, because he rose in victory over Satan, as promised in Genesis, because he crushed the head of the enemy, he then could be the sacrifice on the cross, the perfect sinless sacrifice to receive the wrath of God. You can't do it. But Jesus could take the sin of the world upon him because he was sinless. And he died on the cross, he defeated Satan, then on the cross he defeated sin, and then on the third day he rose again and defeated death. Only Jesus can do that for you. Because of Adam, paradise was barred off. Eternal life was no longer available. But Jesus came along and crushed the enemy, crushed sin, crushed death. He's the only one who can get you back into paradise. God promised that good would triumph over evil. The last point is this. You can jot this down. Jesus must save me from sin and death. Jesus must save me from sin and death. We're going to briefly read through the rest of the Punishment, meted out here. We're not going to study it. We're just going to read it. It says in verse 16, To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Isn't that funny? So <laughs> women, you know, if you gave birth to a child, I think you get, you get to punch even the stomach one time for every child you've had in this world once you get to heaven. Does that sound fair? <laughs> your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. So there's a brokenness to the relationship there and domineering. To Adam he said, "'Because you have listened to the voice of your wife "'and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, "'you shall not eat of it. "'Cursed is the ground because of you. "'In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. "'Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. "'Why why do I live in a jungle? "'Why do I wake up in the wild? "'Why is it not paradise? "'Here's why. "'You shall eat of the plants of the field. "'By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread "'till you return to the ground. "'For out of it you were taken and you are dust. "'To dust you shall return.' The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. That's very gracious, very merciful. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. And that sentence goes unfinished. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. I am barred from eternal life. Jesus must save me from sin, from death. My sins separate me from God. My sins forfeit eternal life. Only Jesus can come along and take care of my sin problem. These subpoints, you can write them down. First of all, we're sinful by nature. And second of all, we're sinful by choice. We can't just blame Adam and Eve. We have to own up to the fact that we are repeat offenders as well. We're sinful by nature. We're sinful by choice. But here's the end of it. That garden broke the whole world. But God wants you to be with Him forever in a garden of paradise. And so right now, I want to close by reading to you from the book of Revelation. You can close your Bibles. I don't want you to go there with me. Just close your Bibles, because I want to read to you the hope that we have by faith. And as I read it, I want you to ask yourself this question. Do I have the hope that I will be with God forever in paradise? Interesting, the word in the Greek for paradise, do you know where it comes from? The word for garden. Garden. Chapter 22, it says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Get this. Through the middle of the street of the city also, on either side of the river, the tree of life. Well, there's where it went. With its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb, that's Christ, will be in it and his servants will worship him. And then it closes with an invitation. It says, The spirit and the bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come, and let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Hey, do you know that your sins have been forgiven? Do you know? Have you come out of hiding, stood before a holy God, repented of your sins? And have you received what's described here as the free gift of the water of life, the promise of eternity and paradise in God's presence? Has there been a point in your life where you were born again? If you can't answer yes, God wants that moment to be right now. And I want to give you a chance right now to believe what you heard, to repent of your sins, to get out from behind the trees, to ask for forgiveness and to leave this room this morning with hope that you will spend forever in paradise with God. Hey, let's all close our eyes and bow our heads right now and let me pray with you. This prayer is not magic words. This prayer is simply your opportunity to come before the God who made you and loves you with a genuine heart, a broken heart, And to ask for something only Christ can give you. Father in heaven, there are some in this room this morning. They have the gift of eternal life. They're going to be there with you. But Lord, life is hard. I pray that you would give them perspective that though they wake up in the wild, one day their eyes shall open and they will see heaven. With their own eyes they'll see it. And they'll live with you forever. But Lord, some here this morning don't have that hope. Some here this morning are still in their sins. Condemned, guilty, ashamed, afraid. But You want to change that. Lord, they may want to pray along with me right now, saying this in their heart. Heavenly Father, I confess that I have sinned, broken your law, grieved your heart. I'm guilty. But here and now, I ask for forgiveness. Based on Jesus' death on the cross, forgive me. Based on Jesus' resurrection, give me life and hope. I want to be with you forever in paradise. Come into my life. Wash away my sins. Lord, those who prayed that this morning, give them the immediate assurance that they now have hope they now will spend forever with you not based on anything they've done or earned based on what jesus christ did on their behalf lord my prayer is that you would give them the courage as your word calls to be baptized in the weeks ahead to show the church that they are now a child of god that they now profess to follow christ give them the courage to make that choice and to go public lord all of these things we commit to you our. Faithful Creator and good God. In Jesus' name we pray.